Welcome to the Lima Reads Podcast by Lima Public Library. Hey guys, it's Shelby here, and today I've got Melody with me, and she's going to tell us about a book that she recently enjoyed called The Ghosts of Eden Park by Karen Abbott. Melody, what is the book about? The book initially I thought was a novel. I was wrong. It is true crime. It is set in the 1920s, and it's the story of George Remus, who was one of the biggest bootleggers in 1920s. And actually, his main base of operations was in Cincinnati, Ohio. Oh, really? Yeah. Okay, so is the whole book set in Ohio, or does it kind of sprawl to different areas? Oh, mostly Ohio, but also parts of Kentucky and Chicago, Washington, D.C. It's kind of all over. Okay. It does. I can see why you thought maybe it was fiction, because the cover is very stylized, and it does. It almost looks like a mystery novel. Which is, on the yeah. Cover. It's a really nice cover. I mean, it looks, it has the jazz age feel for sure. And you definitely get that as you read through there. But what I thought was really cool, partly was the Ohio connection, which I had not. But also in January of 2020, before COVID hit, our winter reading theme was 1920s. Mm-hmm. And one of the last nursing home programs I did before they kicked us out from COVID was to do a program for the residents that dealt with 1920s to kind of take our winter reading theme for that year to them. And this caught my eye because I thought it was a novel that would read similar to a lot of the info that I had found for that program. And then to find out that it was true and that these events happened in Ohio. And in fact, he was one of the most notorious bootleggers during Prohibition. At one point, I believe they called him, it was either the second or the fourth largest bootlegger in the U.S. Oh, wow. Yeah, I, I thought I saw when I was reading about it something about some statistic that he controlled like 35% of all liquor flow in the U.S. at the peak yeah. of Prohibition or something, something like that. Yeah. Um, it's weird that I've never heard of him. I mean, I guess I'm not very well versed in all the... Prohibition era kingpins, <laughs> but I, um, you hear of Al Capone and stuff from that same era, and mm-hmm. you would think that someone that notorious you might have heard of before. But well, and what's really funny is that he started out as a pharmacist. He worked in his uncle's 1920s pharmacy, um, invented several of his own concoctions, went to pharmacy school. Um, took over his uncle's pharmacy at some point and proceeded to expand it and open up several more. And then he decided he was tired of it and studied law. Hmm. So he became a lawyer and, in fact, became a public defender. Oh. And when Prohibition started, that's actually what he was doing. And he started to notice that a lot of the clients he was representing were bootleggers. And they were making millions in an era where a few thousand dollars a year was a lot of money and he couldn't reconcile in his head this idea that wait a minute like they're way out distancing me financially selling this illegal alcohol he was not a drinker but he decided that wait a minute I could make more money doing that than I can as a lawyer defending these people because (laughs) even at that point these thousands of dollar fines that were being levied 
pale in comparison to the amount of money that they could make selling illegal alcohol. And so he switched from being a public defender to being one of the largest bootleggers in American history. It's an interesting transition. I, did that give him any problems? <laughs> like, like, I would imagine he was fairly well-known within <laughs> the justice circuit in that community. So was that... Did people immediately catch on to the fact that he had made that switch? I'm assuming there was a lot of corruption involved. There was a huge amount of corruption. Um, and because of the wealth that he made as a bootlegger, at one point he was one of the largest employers of, um, particularly of German immigrants, because he was originally from Germany. But he was one of the largest employers in the Cincinnati area for a time. Oh, wow. So, And actually the reason that he moved to Cincinnati was that it was within 300 miles of almost all of the major distilleries in the U.S. at that time. So it was a strategic move. (laughs) Yeah, and actually he had been married previously. He married his first wife in the early 1900s before he became a lawyer. When he became a lawyer, his legal secretary caught his eye and he he began an affair with her that his wife found out about, and he divorced his first wife to marry his secretary, Okay, who all, who had a child. So between the two, they had two children, his from his first marriage and hers, and he became a father figure to her daughter as well as his own. Mm. So, um, you know, and at the time that he was at the height of his bootlegging, he was one of the wealthiest, if not the wealthiest man in Cincinnati. Like... They talk about in the, the book, there was a New Year's Eve party that he hosted in his home after he had renovated it. All of the men present that day received diamond stick pins, and there were 50 of these men. Oh, wow. And their wives received brand new cars. Wow. Especially for that era, that's pretty crazy to think about. There was another time where he invited a group over, I believe it was to celebrate his second wife's birthday. And the party favors were, I think it was $1,000 bills that he slipped under all of the dinner plates for like 50 guests. (laughs) Um, And they talked about how at this New Year's Eve party, when he sort of christened his house, that he was lighting the men's cigars with $100 bills just to prove how wealthy he was. And it was just like, okay. (laughs) I couldn't imagine doing that now, much less in 1920, you know, early 20s. When that was worth a lot more than it would be even now. Mm -hmm. You know, a few thousand dollars was a year's income, so $100 was nothing to sneeze at at that point. That's not, I mean, for me, I don't think it is now either, but... Uh, No. I guess when you're that wealthy, that's kind of a drop in the bucket. Um, Was there... Okay, so I was reading a little bit of the summary, and it mentioned um, towards how he got taken down... There was a woman who actually, which... Mabel Wilbrand, who was the assistant um, to the attorney, the U.S. Attorney General. Oh, okay. And it said that when they hired her in, they didn't think she would pose any issues um, with... Like, basically, they had kind of a corrupt relationship with Remus, and they didn't think that this woman would be much of a threat to that. Mm-hmm. Um, stepping into her role, but she had other plans to yeah. take him down, it sounds like. Can you talk a little bit about that? She wasn't a fan of his in particular, um, and she was not a fan of prohibition. 
she was one who pre-prohibition had no problem with drinking a glass of wine, uh-huh. but she was hired specifically to deal with violations of prohibition. Um, and the amendment was prohibition, but the legal act that sort of codified what was and wasn't legal where alcohol was concerned it was called the Volstead Act. Mm-hmm. And so she was specifically hired to prosecute violations of the Volstead Act. And she didn't particularly like Remus because he knew that act very well. He had memorized it and found loopholes in it, which is he used his legal background and then his pharmacy degree to exploit loopholes in the act that essentially allowed liquor to be sold legally as a medicine. Mm, And then basically he would pay his employees to rob him. Oh. And then claimed that the liquor was stolen, but then he would sell it illegally at that point. But he amassed this all, claiming it was for medicinal purposes. And at one point they said he controlled so much alcohol, he had so much alcohol in his possession to fill all of the prescriptions for every doctor in the U.S. multiple times over. (laughs) That, like, in a year you couldn't blow through that much alcohol. (laughs) For medicinal reasons. Right. That she was determined that he was going to serve time for his bootlegging activities because he was doing so much of it, and she knew that. Mm-hmm. Um, and he actually did serve two years in prison for violations of the Volstead Act. Um, what's really funny is that one of her investigators was Franklin Dodge, who at one point posed as an inmate in the penitentiary where he was housed to serve that two-year sentence. Trying to get information out of him, or...? He was actually trying to get information about the illegal bootlegging, but the warden of the penitentiary, the head of the penitentiary in Atlanta where he was housed, was under investigation for, um, I can't even remember, it was a series of things, but corruption among them. Mm And that's what he was actually there primarily to investigate was this corrupt warden who ultimately was convicted of all of this corruption and served time in that prison that he had been (laughs) running. (laughs) That seems like a dangerous position to find yourself in. But while Franklin Dodge was posing in prison and made friends with Remus, he wasn't there for a huge amount of time, obviously. He did his job, he got his conviction, and then he left. Well, when he left... He made advances on Remus's wife, Imogene. What a bad friend. <laughs> um, friend being a very loose term. <laughs> he posed as a friend in prison to get info. Right, right. right. He met... But he didn't know that. Yeah. He didn't know that. <laughs> no. And he actually met Remus's wife when she would come to the prison to visit Remus. And in those days, like, they would let her come in and clean. She would bring him meals. She would bring him money. She would bring him, you know, anything that she could legally get away with bringing him and do for him, she would do it. And so they met that way. Okay. Well, Dodge left the prison before Remus, before Remus's sentence expired or came up, and he proceeded to date Remus's wife, Imogene. Oh, Wow. So wait, am I mixing this up in my head? I thought you meant 
So, I thought you meant that Remus left before Dodge, and Remus started dating, or, you know, whatever, uh, with Dodge's wife. It was the other way around. Oh, that's almost, that's almost almost worse in a way, because he's, like, an official who Uh should know better, and, like, Uh there should be some kind of distance from it, you know, Uh like, professional distance. And... But I bet that I did that help him though to bring him down having having um, Remus's wife helping at him. At that point, he had pretty much already been brought down as low as he was going to be able to be brought down. He only ever served two years in prison, okay. two well, two years in Atlanta and a year in Ohio, so three total. And before he went to prison, he had made his wife sort of the um, like guardian of all of his affairs, the executor of all of his affairs. By the time he came out of prison in Ohio, he had nothing. She had sold it or stolen it and oh, hidden wow. all of it with Dodge's help. Actually, after he finished this investigation into the warden, Franklin Dodge quit his job for the U.S. government. And see ya. <laughs> yeah. And essentially became an item with the biggest bootlegger or one of the biggest bootleggers wives. Wow. Um, That's crazy. And the biggest twist in it, he gets out of prison. He has a vendetta against both of these people. Mm -hmm. He is beyond angry with his wife for basically stealing millions of dollars from him. And Dodge not only helped her do that, but then stole his wife, (laughs) which didn't sit well with him. And he became very angry. Mm -hmm. And he wanted to kill them both. Yeah. And he ultimately was successful at killing her. There was oh, no. Dodge and Imogene actually paid a hitman fifteen thousand dollars to kill Remus, and he decided he wasn't going to pay a hitman to kill them. He was just going to do it himself. Oh wow! Oh yeah. <laughs> um, and the hitman refused to kill Remus, and instead went to him and told him that his still wife and her paramour wanted to kill him. And that he could not bring himself to do that. Wow. <laughs> it gets funnier, weirder. On their way to court to finalize this rather acrimonious divorce, um, it took a few years for the divorce to go to court, he stalked her at the hotel she was staying in, in Cincinnati, before they went to court. And when she came out of the hotel with her daughter to go to court to file, you know, finalize the divorce, he had his driver pursue the taxi she was in Mm. to Eden Park in Cincinnati. He had his driver basically pin her cab in so that the cab couldn't move. Mm -hmm. And of course she saw him and she jumped out of the cab and took off running and he followed her and shot her to death in Eden Park. Oh my gosh. She is actually referred to as the ghost of Eden Park. They say to this day, that she haunts the area around this gazebo where she was shot to death. Hence the title. Yeah. Wow. Um, And he actually pled not guilty. He went and turned himself into the cops. He reported her murder to the police that he had killed her in a fit of insanity. Hmm. And he represented himself along with one other gentleman at his trial claiming temporary insanity. He was acquitted by the jury of temporary insanity and sentenced to time in 
the Lima Asylum. So he actually was in oh. Lima for seven months in the oh, world. Wow. I don't like the Lima the Chamber of Horrors. Yeah. yeah. So they call the it yeah, the Lima State. Yeah. Okay. Um, and what's funny is that the jury basically said we found him not guilty by reason of insanity, which is not what they called it at that time, but basically that's what it was. Mm-hmm. Um, and they said, Merry Christmas. Many of their families were from the area. And as he said, he employed a large number of people, particularly German immigrants, at the height of his bootlegging. And essentially, even the jurors admitted that it wasn't necessarily the most fair trial. Mm. Um, The trial took place right before Christmas and they wanted to acquit him. Yeah, they just wanted to get back home to their families and get it over with, probably. Um, Many of them didn't feel that prohibition was fair and that they felt like prohibition was on trial, not him personally for that murder. Right, yeah, it was more symbolic. Yeah, and so they found him not guilty, basically calling it temporary insanity. Um, What's funny is that all of the psychiatrists who examined him while he was in jail awaiting trial claimed that he was perfectly sane and was essentially acting insane to get out of serving time. And the jury bought it, or at least wanted to buy it, so they did. Yeah. He was imprisoned at the Lima Asylum for seven months, and he got out on a technicality because basically their psychiatrist said, he's not insane, we can't hold him. So he was so he was he was insane, which got him in there. But then he wasn't insane, so they let him him out. Uh, Works out nicely. But the local connection I thought was really cool because I didn't know that, and I've been somewhat leery about reading the print material we have on that asylum because I've heard it was quite nightmare-inducing. That it was it was not a good place to be. that it was not the most humane place to be. Have you just, I, out of curiosity, did you look through any of the, like our newspapers.com database? Did you just do like a quick little George Remus keyword no. search to see if anything comes up about him in, our, in the newspapers? No, but that would be fun if somebody it would wanted be fun, to, yeah. If you wanted a fun project to come in and do that, that has to be done here in our building. But if somebody wanted to do that, I think that could be kind of a cool thing. Yeah, just see what pops up. Huh. Yeah, the local connection toward the end of the, the story really caught my attention. I'm like, okay. Yeah, that's <laughs> that was really cool. I was looking at um, the like the information on this book, and it's I think that it mentioned a couple other books from the same era by this author, or maybe it wasn't the same era. I thought that this wasn't her first book about... <laughs> The 1920s. I would imagine several of these were probably... Oh, Sin in the Second City. And I think we have that one also because I, I remember seeing that one on the shelf. But yeah, it looks like... So Karen Abbott also wrote Sin in the Second City and Liar, Temptress, Soldier, Spy, which I think we also have. That sounds familiar as well. And this one is also digitally available in ebook and e-audio. I didn't check to see which of our two services has it, but at least one of them does. So if you would like to read or listen to it electronically, check out Libby and Hoopla. But we also do have a print copy. 
Yeah, well, this sounds really interesting. So if anyone's interested in reading it, feel free to give us a call and place it on hold. Or like Melody said, you can go online and check our digital services to see where it comes up. Thanks for talking about this. It sounds really interesting. Oh, you're welcome. And if anybody actually researches George Remus, let us know what you find. Because (laughs) I don't think any of us have done that. And and that would be kind of a fun search if somebody had time and wanted to come in and do that. Yeah. Yep. If you do that, uh, just let us know what you you find. (laughs) All right. Well, thanks for listening. And thanks, Melody, for joining us. Oh, you're welcome. We hope you enjoyed today's recommendation, and remember you can always get more information by stopping in or visiting our website at www.limalibrary.com. Thanks for listening!